0: Poker's legendary champions, next-generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson.
1: Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on this show is WSOP bracelet winner, top shelf poker coach, and author of short stack ninja, Chris Fox Wallace. Chris Wallace has been in the game of poker for decades, with the pinnacle of his journey thus far going down on June 8th, 2014. That was his day of post-Black Friday redemption when he won a WSOP bracelet that was very near and dear to his heart. As a man who prides himself on playing at a high level in all poker formats, Chris's victory came in the 2014 10K horse event, which, in his own words, if I could have chosen one tournament to win, that's the event I would have chosen. Other than the main event, of course. Chris's journey through the world of cards is an amazing one filled with glorious peaks as well as soul-crushing valleys that you've come to expect from folks living the poker dream. In today's episode, you're going to learn how a rare wood allergy changed the trajectory of Chris's life overnight, Chris's trials and tribulations battling through Black Friday, poker coaching lessons both Chris and I have learned over the years, and much, much more. But before you dive head first into this episode with the fox himself, I want to tell you why you should think about investing in the CPG courses. If you've tried other paid training platforms and instantly felt overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the content, unsure of where to start or what to prioritize in your limited available time to improve your poker game, then I believe you'll be very pleased with the structure of CPG courses. Each course is designed to teach you elite, data-driven exploitative strategies for one specific high-value scenario at a time so that when those spots come up, you'll know the exact action to take to maximize your EV. If you'd like to see the entire CPG course catalog, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com courses. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com courses. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you world-class mixed game player and coach, WSOP bracelet winner, Chris Fox Wallace. Chris, welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast, sir. How are you? I am great. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. It's great having you on. We've had a couple misconnections. We're getting it down now. You were telling me that you were just on vacation in one of your favorite places in the world. So, let's we'll start there with the the listener. Where is one of your favorite places in the world?
2: Well, they, it was, yeah, it wasn't, it was kind of a vacation. We made it into a vacation, but it was like a thing we had to suddenly go do where we had to suddenly be in Montana and then we had to suddenly be in California and this whole, it was a, it was a crazy couple of weeks of traveling, but, um, but, but luckily one of the places we had to be was near Flathead Lake Montana, which is just an amazing, just stunning place. It's uh, the largest lake geographically, this side of the Mississippi. Um, it's not as much water as um, Tahoe, but it's, uh larger geographically and it's just surrounded by trees it's, it's very little development on it it's a gorgeous gorgeous place so we drove, our, we drove around and i'm into wildlife photography so we drove around looking for wildlife and that was it was a super fun place it's beautiful
1: there yeah you were saying the most beautiful place in the world and one of your favorite places which i, I as somebody that is a collector of favorite places and you know just individuals if they could be somewhere they would be there um you I don't put, know.
2: Head Lake is that spot for me because during the summer they have mosquitoes, and during the winter it's cold, so I couldn't live there. But well, if you go at the right time, it sure is beautiful.
1: Yeah, the right time. Uh, like for me, we went to Yosemite a few years back. That we that was amazing. It was Yosemite in, in the summer, and just the whole Monterey area. Just I it is probably my favorite place to to be. Have you been to Zion? I haven't. No. Is, that is the national park we, we tell everybody about
2: in the area. You know, we're, we're very outdoorsy, hiking, wildlife photography people. And and so that's just a big hobby for us. And our favorite of all the national parks in America is Zion, which is only a couple hours from here, from Vegas. It's, it's just an amazing place. And a lot of people will come and go, okay, I'm going to go to Bryce and Zion and do all these. And we go, no, just go to Zion. It's just <laughs> amazing. Let's mm-hmm. do
1: that one. Surprisingly, I've spent very few time in Las Vegas. Probably over my life, three or four weeks combined. I, wow. I, yeah, I'm a poker player that doesn't really love Vegas. I've always been more of like a LA poker scene person, uh-huh. and for some reason, I'm also kind of weird in that I like the humidity. <laughs> Most people hate the humidity, and I like the humidity in Vegas is like my nightmare it i feel like i'm just getting i I feel like god is just standing above me with a magnifying glass like right (laughs) on me and i'm subject to just melt at any point yeah
2: um it takes some adjustment well you know i moved here from minnesota but i was always spending a lot of time here anyway but when i used to come for the world series of poker and be here for six weeks or whatever uh you know my I'd have bloody noses and my lips would be dry and everything would be cracked and it just would feel awful. And then after like three or four months here, that goes away. And now when I go to humid places, I now I hate it because my body is acclimated to the dry and I just love it. My joints feel better and my everything's. Uh, now I'm used to it and I really like
1: it. There you go. I just needed to stay in Vegas for four months. Yeah, being miserable and That's then then I it, I would have been a Vegas person. Having a pool helps
2: a lot too. I mean. I used to hate 115, and now I'm excited for 115 because that means I can be out working by the pool all day, and just jump in the pool every 20 minutes, and throw some food on the grill for lunch. And you know that's a that's a great thing. Whereas before I had a pool, it was 115 just meant you're trapped indoors, the same way we were in Minnesota in the winter.
1: Exactly. I could see how a pool could uh, make the experience much better and
2: changes everything. Yeah.
1: So let's go back to. Your Minnesota days, right? Typically we start this show out by asking about your story and how you got involved playing cards. So let's dig in.
2: I was a guitar builder. I've always kind of chosen unique jobs that are hard to make a living at. I like a challenge, I guess. And um, I was a guitar builder and I was playing blackjack for a living on the side, you know, for part of my living on the side on and off for years and years. I bought a copy of Beat the Dealer when I was 16 and so playing cards for money was not weird for me, right? That was something I was already comfortable with. And I had a friend, my pal Adam Stempel, who who's the co-author in my first book, um, who was a semi-pro poker player. He was in his words, playing poker for smokes and beer for 25 years. And um then I developed an allergy to exotic hardwoods that almost killed me a couple of times. And by the time we figured out what it was, it was time for me to quit immediately. My career was over
1: um tell me about that let's go uh, like there's something there right like tell me about developing an allergy to exotic hardwoods like what what was happening to you um well i have a lot of allergies anyway mm
2: -hmm. and so i guess that's just a thing for me and then a lot of the exotic hardwoods that we build guitars with in particular brazilian rosewood have these amazing massive complex chemicals in the resin and apparently it's not an uncommon thing Piano refinishers have a big problem with it, both in the finish and in the wood sometimes, uh, where over time, if you're exposed to these things, you develop sensitivities to them. And uh, so there was a lot of Brazilian rosewood and Honduras, mahogany and macassar ebony and some other things in the air all the time, dust and whatever. Right? I used to take Brazilian rosewood shavings when I would shave it with the plane and get these fine little shavings. You, you can light them on fire and it smells like burning roses in the room. It's beautiful. It's it's like incense, except that the smoke is like this thick black thing that goes straight up in the air, like when you're burning plastic and you feel like you could almost take it out of the air and roll it into a ball. It's so thick. And that's because there's so much resin in Brazilian Rosewood and it's a class one carcinogen. And that, that was something we didn't know 20 years ago. Mm. Um, at least I didn't. And uh, and you shouldn't be putting it on the belt sander without a mask on anyway, but it's the wood for building acoustic guitars for the acoustic blues guitars that I love. It's the stuff. And, um, so I was using it, I was working with it a lot. And over time, if your body's exposed to those things, you can develop a sensitivity to them. And my particular sensitivity caused my throat to close up at night. I would wake up in the morning and my throat would be almost closed. And luckily I've had asthma my my whole life and I don't have any problems with it now really. But, um, at the time, you know, but, but it caused me to, to not completely panic and freak out, right? Most people would have, but like having had asthma as a kid, I kind of knew. And so I'd go to the hospital and they shot me so full of adrenaline, I thought my hair was on fire the second time. That one was really bad. And, and then couldn't figure out what the allergy was. And so I walked into an allergist's office after the third one time I was in the hospital and he said, do you work with exotic hardwoods? He had this, he had this, my folder in his hand and I said, yes. And he said, Not anymore said, bring me some samples, but be really careful going back to your shop. So I brought him because he didn't have Brazilian rosewood dust to test on
1: me. How did it feel when he said that?
2: Not anymore. Um, I kind of didn't believe it at first. I was really, you know, oh, well, we'll see. You know, like maybe this is the solution. I don't know. I went and brought him some Brazilian rosewood dust and some dust from a few other uh, of the hardwoods I was working with and some stuff from around the shop and he did a little under the skin. It's like subcutaneous test with a couple of things in preparation. And the Brazilian Rosewood one, the test sent me into anaphylactic shock. Oof. So it like spidered all over my arm, just in lines of uh, like in raised welts that moved around all over my arm. Wow. And that was within like five minutes. And I was like, well, this looks like a problem. And he said, that is a big problem. <laughs> yeah. And I said, my lips are going numb. And he said, yep. And he took me to the ER and treated me for anaphylactic shock immediately. he said look you should wear a mask when you go back to clean out your shop but you can never work there again so um i you know i was building custom guitars and doing repair work and stuff and i could have kept doing a lot of repair work i could have kept doing setups and been a guitar tech for a band or you know those kinds of things i was overqualified for that kind of job but that wasn't what i loved I, i loved building guitars and i loved in particular building like acoustic blues guitars so I just decided not to do it anymore. Just It just wasn't. And then also, I'm probably running a little risky. But even if I'm, you know, I can't be in anybody else's shop. I can't be in any, you know, exposed to any of these things. So so I just decided not to do it anymore. And I had driven cab many years before. And so I went and drove cab in Minneapolis for, I don't know, eight months or something while I was trying to figure out what else to do.
1: And, and, and how did how did it feel like not being able to do this thing that like you loved doing ever, ever again? And then um, dri- driving... Driving a cab, I think that
2: you know it was it was certainly frustrating, but it wasn't as bad maybe as it would be for a lot of things, because I had learned that it it in fact wasn't like a great love for me um mm. in terms of doing it as a job. um I loved building guitars, I love the guitars that I built that I still own, but it's putting everything into this thing and then sending it away. And you probably never see it again. And a properly built acoustic guitar is gonna sound a lot better 20 years later than it does when it was built, right? I mean, you know, I've got a guitar downstairs that was built in 1970, which sounds great. And I've got another one from the 30s, it sounds great. Um, they, they get better with time. So it really, as a job, it wasn't a thing I loved. I'm kind of sad that I can't do it as a, as a hobby anymore. But it it wasn't really heartbreaking. It was it was frustrating money wise more than anything.
1: Yeah. So so you transitioned to driving a cab, trying to figure out what. Yeah, to that do was and the thing.
2: I, that was a thing I could start doing tomorrow and be paying my bills and figure out what I was going to do from there. Whether I was going to go to school or you know how what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to go see Adam's band quite often. They were a fun, rowdy Irish band, and go see them and. Adam and I got to be pals. I was working on their guitars. Was kind of how I got started seeing them, and and I knew Adam played a lot of poker. And I used to play poker for nickels in my, you know, in my apartment with my friends and stuff. But it was you know a thing I was familiar with. But I had never played a hand of Hold'em. Um, how old were you? I was, um, I don't know, thirty. Okay, thirty, twenty, uh, late twenties, somewhere in there. And I knew that Adam played serious poker and i thought that sounded like fun so this was like around the year 2000 i guess 2000 yeah like when i got the allergy was around the year 2000 2001 and um and i asked adam is it possible to play poker for a living and he stopped and thought for a second and he said for you yeah i'm sure it is why and,
1: why did he uh, think you'd be capable
2: he knew that i was playing blackjack seriously and he, he thought i was a sharp guy and then that was a thing that that i had the potential skill set for and he was right um so the next you know his next gig on the next week um i went to see the band and he brought me three poker books and you know at the time there maybe there were only 10 poker books in existence and eight of them were terrible or something but um you know he brought me uh the theory of poker and hold them for advanced players and something else and uh I started reading I was like wow there's so much to this game I had no idea there was so much to the to to poker that you could think about you know so I started reading and thought well obviously I'm going to be really good at this really fast this is there's a bunch of expert stuff here that people don't know right and I just just didn't you know I was dumb but I was but happened to be right at the time because no one was good at poker back then so um, started studying and while I was driving cab I had a Poker book on the seat next to me the whole time. When I wasn't driving cab, I was also, I also started going through a divorce right then and kind of needed distractions. And so I just drove cab and studied. Those are the only things I did for like six months. I just studied, studied, studied. I filled notebooks full of information and then would go back through them and cross out things that I now knew and didn't need to remember more of. And then when a page was fully crossed out, I would tear it out and throw it away. And then when the notebook was full and I just had two pieces of cardboard, then I felt like I knew some things, you know?
1: yeah you do I some really shit. hard,
2: yeah, I started really hard for six months and uh started playing online uh that was right when online started. I was playing on like Planet poker, which was I think the first kind of real real money website um, and was winning as soon as I started um, six months before I had never played a hand of hold in my life and and by the time that six months was up, I was making too much money to go to work you know i would i would make 150 bucks a night driving cab and i'd make 200 if i played poker instead so i quit driving cab and started playing poker and and that was like 19 or 20 years ago or something that was my last job
1: it's funny how familiar that sounds to me because i was younger than you a decade younger but i was working at applebee's 19 and found poker and i took the theory of poker, hold them for advanced players because, you know, that's, of course, that's where I would start because those were the books back then. Why wouldn't I start yeah. Hold'em them for advanced players? I'm obviously. Yeah. Uh, a smart person at 19 and need the advanced version first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and nobody, super, wants super system. nobody
2: wants to read Hold'em for people who aren't good at
0: poker, right?
1: <laughs> well, there was a poker for dummies, I think, back then too. Yeah. Um, I passed that up because I wanted the advanced players <laughs> book uh, and, and Super System. And every day yeah. I would bring it to work and get to work an hour early and read. And then I would stay an hour after my shift and read more poker. And with this just mindset of being held bent on being a professional poker player. Um, and that was all I thought about. And that was all That's that I you did. That's how get there. And that that yeah. is definitely how you get there. Right. So it's just, it's just funny to me. I, I see myself in your story because like, it's just the, the immersion, the same books and just the mindset, right?
2: Copy of Super System I bought 20
1: years ago right here. Oh, wow. <laughs> I am not that good at hanging on to things. Uh I did
2: hang on to almost all my poker books. And so uh when we moved into the you know we bought a house a couple of years ago and when I moved in and started unpacking stuff we had more bookshelves than I had books left. So we dragged out all the poker books. So now I have and I don't remember the last time I read a poker book. It's been a couple of years, maybe a year, but I have all of the old ones. So I have, you know, shelves and shelves full of poker books because you know, fifteen years ago I was reading every book I could find.
1: Yeah, I think the last poker book that I read was Maria Kanakova's The Biggest Bluff. And I'm so mad at that book. Why are you mad at the book?
2: My book was number two on the poker books on Amazon. And I and I could never get past her because she hers was just such a massive seller at the time. And hers was a New York Times bestseller at the time. My self published poker book was never going to catch her. But I just, as I moved up, like every few days, and I'd I'd check and I'd moved up farther and farther up the ranks, and I got to number two, and I thought, oh God, how great it would be to be number one. And I looked, what is number one? And I went, oh wow, it was selling like, you know, 500 times as many books (laughs) as mine was. I was never going to get there. I've heard it's very good, though.
1: It is good, it's a good read. And you're right. You stand no no chance. You're no you're, chance. you're hopeless. Um, no. She has like a whole a whole thing behind her, driving. You know, like yeah, her, publishing this,
2: company in it. yeah,
1: yeah. You, you're you're toast. But that's okay. Number two's number two's okay behind Maria Konnikova because yeah. I, I think too, like, just somebody releasing a book that large about our world has likely done just amazing things just for introducing new people to poker, bringing people in like new, a new fascination and curiosity. So yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry that you're number two, but (laughs) I'm glad she's number one.
2: (laughs) Yeah. If it gave us a tiny little moneymaker style bump, that's, that's amazing for us. Even a few people.
1: For sure. So you start playing poker professionally, you quit your gig driving the cab. I'm assuming you're playing limit poker because that was like all there was pretty much back then unless you're playing tournaments at the time i was playing a lot of sit and
2: goes um i was playing some limit poker at the local casino Uh, luckily in in minnesota the card rooms are really good with two card rooms and they're both excellent and uh at the time we only had the one canterbury park but canterbury is a, a really good room and so i was i was playing limit and limit is the big thing there because there's a limit on the max bet size in minnesota same way they have it in colorado So limit poker is a big thing. there. So I did come, come up playing limit poker there. And then, but I was mostly playing $30 sit and goes on party poker for a living when I, when I quit my job. And that was, you know, I was, I was young and I didn't have any expenses and I didn't have a car payment. My car was paid off. I was living in a little apartment. Like my life was cheap. So, uh, and I could go back to driving cab if I needed to, but, um, I, so I didn't really have a lot of risk. So I probably quit my job way earlier than I would tell any of my students to ever do that. Most of them, I tell them now, just don't quit your job anyway. Poker is a great side gig and, and not a great way to make a living these days for most people. But I was, you know, playing, I was, I bought a 1600 by 1200 monitor, but a big investment for me so that I could play four tables because you couldn't resize tables back then. So then I, so then I could play four tables of $30 sit and goes. And I was making like 35 bucks an hour or something, which was a lot of money for me back then. And I could pay my bills and, Go you know have a good time every night if I wanted to it was it was yeah that was that was a fun year or two Uh, and then you know moving my way up the ranks until you know back when sit and goes were easy playing two hundred dollars sit and goes and making just piles of money and hardly working any hours because I didn't have to you know that's the every online poker player has that I wish I could go back to this time and that's me if I could go back to when I was playing two hundred dollars sit and goes on Party Poker and my ROI was like fifteen percent. Like, why didn't I just four table those 60 hours a week and just retire after five years? Like, what what was I thinking,
1: you know? I, I think that you're right. Like, we do have those regrets, but I'm actually pretty suspicious that in 10 years, we will wish that we could go back to today and play the games that are running today. So I think that, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bit of a misnomer that, I just hear people say all the time that I I kind of take exception to where it's like, man, like poker's so tough today and I can barely make it, but I would have been just instantly rich if I would have been playing back in 2005. And like, my thought is always, if you cannot make it today, you could not make it then. And that's just how I feel because you can make it today if you try hard. And if you're saying that, like, there's some external reason as to why you can't make it today because the competition is so so much higher than it was ten years ago. Well, like imagine trying to navigate your way through poker with super system, and that's it, and then figuring things out on your own, right? Like you had no help, no assistance, no software, no training site, no nothing. So, like if you can't make it today with all the resources that are available on the market, and bad players still play, right? Um, then you weren't going to make it back then either. Uh
2: but yeah. I'm I, sure you're right about that. The resources now are just so much better that while you have to be much better to survive now, you can get much better really quickly.
1: Yeah, you can you know, get, get much better, much faster. Amazing now. Absolutely. And I think in 10 years, people will be looking back. New players will come into the game and they'll be like, Oh my god, I can't believe I wasn't around in the year 2021. I could have just printed money. It was so easy for you guys <laughs> yep. back then. Yeah. Um but let's go back. I'm going forward, way forward in time. Let's go back in time. You're moving your way up. You're playing to 200. Uh, sit and goes. Uh, I know what happens next, at least in the world of party poker. Party poker gets out of the United States. What, what was your site that you were playing on regularly back then? And then, like, what was your grind? What did it look like?
2: I have a little bit of poker ADD where I I just can't play the same game over and over again. I get bored. So I played almost all the forms of poker for a living at some point and bounced around a lot. So I, I moved to full tilt one party poker left, but I was, you know, big into rake back and, um, the guy who at least the, as the story goes, and I think it might be true, the guy who invented the term rake back was from Minnesota. And, um, so he told us about it and we started uh, getting rank back pretty quickly and pretty early and then started promoting it as well. Um, so Adam and I started a poker training site. We talked about poker all the time. We um, started writing things about it and we started a, a training site, which we eventually sold to Poker X Factor and became instructors there. They bought all of our content. Um, so I was doing some coaching. I was doing some playing and I was playing all these different games and learning new games. So um, when, when party poker left and the rake back disappeared, full tilt had rake back. So I went there. That was really the thing that drew me there. I checked all the sites and full tilt had rake back. And when I started playing there, the games are great. So that was my spot. And so I played, like, I played two, four and three, six, no limit um, six max for at least a year, almost exclusively. And those got boring. And so I started playing mixed games and learning those. And I went from one two to two hundred four hundred in like a year playing mixed games that, that really took to the mixed games and I loved learning about them and uh people were really bad at them so on full tilt at first it was just horse and then they changed then they added eight game as an option and then they added ten game as an option toward the end and so those were those were the games that I played a lot of, but I was still playing some tournaments and you know mixing it up with different games and playing sicknessgos here and there and playing some know uh 08 or raz um i would often be you know toward the end i would, toward the end of the full tilt days i was often sitting by myself at like a 100 200 raz table at three in the morning just waiting for someone to to sit down and and i had done all the math on raz myself for for heads up situations and so i played that game pretty well for back then and that that's how it kind of progressed was through a bunch of different games and different levels and uh until the end on black friday when things fell apart
1: Tell me, what are some lessons that you learned bouncing around playing the mixed games that helped you out as it relates to like your No Limit Hold'em MTT strategy or your No Limit Hold'em cash? Because I have to imagine that there are parallels and takeaways from the mixed games that are beneficial to really just your, your poker game as a whole.
2: Yeah, well, mixed games will definitely teach you to keep the reins on yourself mentally. You know, some some people will just lose their minds if they have to play Raz during the mix and in a horse tournament. Like they just hate it so much, and they'll, they'll lose their minds. It definitely keeps you, makes you mentally strong, and it also helps you think about the game from a lot of different perspectives. And and always be thinking about the money. Like in uh, in stud games, when you get short handed, which I often was in those bigger limit games, especially late at night, um, the antes are tiny. There's no blinds. So you have to actually play way tighter heads up than you would eight handed. And that's counterintuitive for Hold'em players where you have to play much looser heads up than you would eight handed. And so um, those kinds of changes keep you focused on how much money is in the pot, how likely am I to win it, how, you know, the real nuts and bolts of how I make money here instead of trying to learn a bunch of platitudes like, like we often do when we get started with Hold'em. You know, you, you've learned to let go of those things. And that's one of the hardest things I have with my students is, you know, they'll come to me as intermediate players and I go, okay, we need to retool your game because you've learned a bunch of things that we're going to get rid of now and you're never going to think about it. You know, we, we don't think about like, okay, uh, I can call a raise here because I have 10 jacks suited and that's a good hand to see a block with. That's like such simplistic thinking that we have to get rid of it and you need to never think that again. We need you right. to think about what all the things that actually matter in the situation, and data points. I think playing lots of different games helps with some that helps that somewhat
1: yeah for sure like you're gonna focus on the data points right like what are what are my odds what kind of equity do I think I have what range is this villain opening from uh just like everything that matters how is the hand
2: gonna play out from here am I do I have a lot of bluff cards coming does he have a lot of bluff cards coming there's all this yeah all those things where you're looking forward and you're thinking about what's happening now and what's gonna happen?
1: Yeah. And Less like narrative driven thinking. This is something that like I, I try to drive out of my students' minds. Where it's like, well, I three bet him five minutes ago. So now, if I three bet him again, like he's more likely to four bet me, and he's thinking that like I'm just attacking him or targeting him, and like he's gonna be check raising here me here light because I've three bet four times in a row. And I'm like, like slow down. Like this is all just like projection. And not based in reality. Like, we need to pay attention to the data points in front of us and look at the board, look at the situation, like just throwing out everything, all the data points, and be like, no, this guy's check raising me because I've been attacking him and now he's attacking me back. Like, that's such an oversimplification that causes you so much harm when it's like, who knows what the other three situations were and if they're even parallel to the current situation that you're in, right? Like, those sort of. Oversimplifications just destroy people. But I like I understand why they make them because they're trying to play a very complex game, and it's a lot easier to make those oversimplifications. But like the reality is, you know, you want to win at poker. Shit's hard. So let's yeah, you got to think. Yeah, you got to think. You you can't just like you can't just get by by making these like massive oversimplifications. So yeah, just bear down and bear down. Work hard and. Uh, ignore the the stuff that doesn't matter and let's focus on like the actual data points in the hand that's happening.
2: Yeah, I think if you're a good poker coach, you pretty quickly learn that half the time what you're coaching is psychology that you, you end up being a therapist almost more often than the strategy because the strategy doesn't take that long to understand. You can explain the strategy pretty simply, but getting people to actually be able to do it is totally different.
1: Yeah, and getting people, them to feel the confident
2: enough to do yeah. it. That, that projection and that like, you know, I, I have all these hands that I've set up to ask people about when I first start working with them to kind of get a feel for where their mind is, you know, like uh, the button raises and you're in the small blind with ace three offsuit. Um, you're at, you know, you have, you have 40 big blinds and he has uh, 50 big blinds and the big blind has 40 big blinds and you're, you know, in the middle of a tournament. Um, I give him this whole setup. And then I say, so let's start with what's his range on the button. And the vast majority of my students will give this absurdly tight range. They'll say like, oh, sixes are better and like ace 10 are better. You know, really? He's going to fold ace nine, open fold ace nine on the button. Oh no, I guess like any ace. And then I go, he's going to fold fours. And they're, no, I guess he would play any pair. And I'm like, what about 10, nine suited? And they're like, yeah, I guess he would raise that on the button. And that, so I teach him to check the edges of their range, right? When you come up with a range estimate, then you need to check the edges and say, okay, then he won't play these things and like go through that whole thing because, and, and I find that if I give them a different hand in the small blind there, they give different ranges because that's that psychological effect of like, oh crap, I'm going to have to play ace three offsuit out of position in the middle of a tournament. That sounds terrible. This guy, I'll just give this guy a good range and then I won't have to play it like psychologically. You're not thinking that, but you're, some part of your brain is making that happen. So, you know, doing a bunch of those sorts of uh, of kind of tests um, helps me understand like how people are thinking and where they are, and and what kind of pitfalls we're going to have going forward. Because it, so many people fall into that exact same trap of of you know, this is what I want to do. This is what's most comfortable. So this is the range that I'll give them in order to allow myself to do the thing that's the most comfortable.
1: Oh. A thousand percent. And you know, these are these are greatness bombs. And I, I just want to add that like what I find manifests in my private coaching students is if they get surprised, right? Something surprises them, they face a sizing, they're not expecting. What happens is emotionally they they're nervous. First of all, they're like, they're scared. They're nervous. They don't know how to interpret this thing that they didn't see coming. There's a time mm-hmm. crunch where they have limited time to figure out and make a decision. And basically, however they feel, right? Whether it's like fear, then they go down the narrative driven path of creating a scary situation because they're trying to make sense of their fear. And so they're telling a story that makes sense of the fear without looking objectively at the information as presented in front of them and then making a decision, which is what you're talking about, right? It's like right. you don't want to play Ace Tray offsuit because you're afraid. Therefore, the story that you tell yourself is that they have a tight opening range on the button so you, so that you get to fold the Ace Tray offsuit and you don't have to play it, right? It's like yep. making sense of them feeling uncomfortable, them feeling fear, because that, that's what we do as human beings, right? Like we always make these stories up, like when we're afraid, well, if X, Y, and Z wouldn't have happened, then I think I would have done it, but now I'm just not going to do it. Like I, I would call here, like if I had a club, but but I don't have a club, so I'm just going to fold. And, I, and I'm like, really? You think this whole this whole situation hinges on whether or not you have a club in your hand? Like that's the deciding <laughs> factor of whether or not you call? Like that's that's pretty, that's pretty weak reasoning. Um, I think reasoning.
2: people feel like they're making an advanced play also, when they do that, if they, if they say something like that, where they go, you know, it, it gives them an extra opportunity to find a way out of the situation and to explain that fear by coming up with something that sounds like an advanced play as well. Because they hear po- advanced players talking about, well, if I had the club blocker here, or if I had the back door, this or whatever, because these advanced players are weighing super fine, you know, slicing super thin on the equity. And so they feel like they're doing that too. But I love that that idea that there's an emotion that happens, and then the logic appears to explain the emotion, and that's where the problem is. Like, you know, that's where the vast majority of mental health problems come from, right? We have an emotion that doesn't make sense, and then we try to explain it, and then, you know...
1: Yeah. Try to make sense of it. And this happens to even my advanced players, my crushers, the guys that are playing like high stakes, you know, it's the same because of course they have emotions. Right. And they try to make sense of them because we're human beings, especially yep. in a situation that's unstudied, because obviously if it, if, if it were studied, they may expect the sizing that they faced. Uh, so, yeah, it happens, I think, with every human being and on all levels of poker when we're confronted with a situation that's foreign that we don't know how to make sense of it. And that's just kind of our default mode. Yeah. I think when I started, like a lot of players, I thought I was just going to become the perfect poker
2: player, right? I was going to be the Johnny Chan or whoever it was. And I was not going to have any, of these. I was not going to have it. I did not have a tilt problem. I was never going to have any of these problems. And I, and I didn't have the obvious tilt problem. I wasn't throwing a mouse across the room or yelling at the table or doing anything crazy. Um, and so I believed that I didn't have any tilt issues for the first, like probably five years I was playing. And then I did a seminar. We, we, uh, Adam and I, and Al Schoonmaker, the, the poker psychology guy, um, did a seminar in Reno for a weekend for some, uh, for 11 players. And, and I talked to Al a lot during that time and realized everybody has, is affected by their, their emotions while they're playing. And that I needed to think about that more. And it helped me be a lot better player to consistently think about, and and accept that my emotions are affecting my thinking. I can't just say, I'm not going to let that happen. It's going to happen. There's no way around it. You have to accept it and like deal with it and figure out how to handle it and not just act like, I'm not going to let that happen. That's like, I'm not going to let this lion eat me. The lion doesn't care.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is like, my, my students are probably sick of me telling them that like the only way out is through as it relates to your emotions while you're playing poker. But like that dims the facts. You can't game the system. You can't get around (laughs) it. You can't just flip your emotions off whenever it's convenient. I would say if you could, then death would probably not affect you in the way that it does or bad news, bad things happening in your life, right? Like you experience grief. You can't just be like, well, I don't want to feel this anymore. So I'm just going to turn this You can't do it. You're a human being. And thank goodness you can't do it because like our emotions are what, make us human beings really like yeah. they're, they're they're everything so like basically instead of just kind of like trying to bury them under the sand and not deal with them like let's look at them intelligently and deal with them in an intelligent way so that you're able to understand your emotions why they're happening make sense of them and then hopefully over time be more resilient be able to recover faster from feeling your emotions but you always you always have to feel them there's no other option and, and so we may as well feel them uh, be aware of how they're affecting um our thought process and then ultimately try to recover as fast as we can
2: absolutely and the, that that being conscious of the recovery is a really big thing uh my my co-author and business partner adam had a had a tilt problem when he started playing a lot he had a real tilt problem playing a lot online and and worked really hard at figuring out how to handle it and we worked on it together some and we came up with all these different things and tested them on him and then tested them on a lot of our students and people that are members of the training site. And, you know, the old count to 10, when you're angry thing, right? You Read some studies about that. It actually works a little bit, but what works a lot better is doing more complicated things than counting. So we ended up with and Adam still does it to this day, the Fibonacci sequence, starting with the last two cards on the flop. So, if he takes a terrible beat or he's, uh, he's just gotten stacked or something has frustrated him or somebody made him angry, he starts the Fibonacci sequence with the last two cards. of it's a 10 and a 7 and you go 17 and then 24 and then you, can, you move your way up until it gets really hard to do and then you're done. Because when it gets really hard to do, your brain is now processing logically. And when you do these kinds of things, when they have people do them in labs, you can actually see the brain waves change. And you go back to processing logically if you force your brain to do some logical process. It's almost wow. like a gear that you, you can, you can push your brain back into. You're not perfect yet, but it helps a lot. And being, but you have to be conscious of the fact that either you're, you're, you are angry and need to do this, or that certain things make you angry and you won't realize it at the time. And so whenever those things happen, you need to do this, which is me. I don't always know when I'm feeling tilted. So if I get stacked twice in a no limit game, like in, in a live cash game here in Vegas, if I'm down two buy-ins, I have to get up and take a walk and think about it. And I may go home after that, but I will often decide that I'm okay and go back to the table. But I have to take a walk and think about it because I might be stressed out and not know it. I might be really bothered by it. Maybe the game's just great and, and I got it in twice as good and it's fine and I'll keep going. I mean, I, I can keep playing if I'm four, four buy-ins down and be fine some nights. But other times, you know, big losses bother me and I just know to set those rules and just go home.
1: I mean, that's a great, it's a great guideline to to help you play poker, right? Like just consciously walking around and making yourself think about it, giving yourself the space and the opportunity to think about it. I think a lot of times we don't give ourselves enough space to think about it. Um, And you just have to, because like, if you are compromised, if you are playing at a low level, if you're upset, that's not good it's not good for your like hourly rate your peace of mind it's not good not only in that you lose money but also you drive home with regret that you didn't quit earlier that you were not on your a-game and then you have to deal with that worst yeah then you got to deal with that regret for like (laughs) days right it just lingers
2: yeah those drives home are terrible
1: they really they really are
0: the decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Preflop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your preflop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your pre-flop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash Boot Available now.
3: Yeah, before bootcamp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site kind of feeling a little bit lost not really knowing how to go about getting better and pre-flop boot camp just felt like a great starting point a way for me to, to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player it felt like the right first step.
1: Once you jumped in boot camp what was your experience like? Well first off I realized that
3: I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was, it was exciting because I, I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal, you know, that that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I,
1: I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post boot camp?
3: It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch-up, um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re- really work together, even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome.
1: What's your sample size of winning post boot camp?
3: I think I have seventy thousand hands played by now. You know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size.
1: Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new boot camp launches on the last Saturday of every single month. And your link to join is chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingThePokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. Let's kind of go back to your story now. In 2011, a bad thing happened. I think we are all aware of that bad thing, but tell me how did April 15th, 2011 affect you?
2: It was, it destroyed me. Um, It was one of the hardest things I've ever dealt with. Uh, Adam and I had worked really hard to build up this training business and this rakeback business. We were making enough money to make a living just with the training and rakeback. And then I was making a lot of money playing poker on full tilt and my backup plan had always been like if I'm playing too big and the business goes sideways and I lose a bunch of money, I can just go play fifty dollars and make my, you know, and build my bankroll back up again. And even my backup plan disappeared. So Adam and I had an office in St. Paul and we, we drove into work and fired up the computers and nothing. The the you know saw saw that when when full tilt opened it was the FBI and and didn't know what to do. Um, it was a few hours before we even found out what had happened, and then you didn't know how long it was going to be. We expected maybe it'll be up again in a week or two, or these other sites will be up, or who knows. And um, because we started our rakeback business way before almost anyone else had, we had, it used to be that Full Tilt would pay rakeback once a month. But we started playing our, paying our players once a week. And I would just front the money out of my bankroll to pay the players because it made our players happy. They would play more. It was a nice service we could offer people, whatever. And so on Friday mornings, I would transfer the money out of my account to my, out of my player account to our affiliate account. And we had a separate full tilt account that was for our affiliate account, which was by that time, completely not allowed, but they told us. You know, our affiliate managers told us it's all above board. It's fine. Just don't change anything about it or you'll lose this account and we'll have to do things a different way. But if you don't, you know, so it was like, it was like they were breaking the rules for us or bending the rules for us, but they also told us it was okay. We weren't doing anything shady. And so I had transferred money in to that affiliate account the night before uh, $45,000. So When everything got shut down, I not only lost the fifty grand that was in my player account, but the forty-five thousand that was in the affiliate account. And when later they didn't give the affiliates that money back, so the forty-five grand—it was like a matter of a few hours that that transferring that money cost me the forty-five grand. But you know, my bankroll—I had also just sent a check to the government that morning for my taxes for like twenty-seven thousand dollars. I, you know, I lost more than ninety percent of my bankroll that day in an instant and i had like i don't know 10,000 or something on poker stars as just kind of money i could play tournaments with or whatever but you know losing that almost 100 grand on full tilt was a big was a big deal and i had you know by this time i had a mortgage and a car payment and like you know real expenses in my life my wife was in college i had two dogs the whole thing and so i had you know thank god that poker stars got us the money back fast um, I was, a uh, some level of VIP where they got me the money fast, but even faster than other people. And so I had like 10 grand in my pocket pretty quick because I had written a check for almost all the money in the bank to the government, almost all the cash I had on hand. Um, just not, not thinking that money in an online poker site might not be safe, it seems ridiculous now, but back then that's how we all kind of felt.
1: I uh, mean, w- when you live through it, right, it was just a given and you know it's being advertised on ESPN it's everywhere you can't you can't miss it everybody knows about online poker everybody's playing online poker and
2: and you were used to bouncing money in and out whenever you wanted it was easy it was you know it was you easy didn't, you didn't expect you just uh, well, I'll just go grab that money whenever I need it
1: yeah I mean I guess the first the first like warning sign if we're like looking back or red flag was kind of like when party poker Disappeared, and then when NetTeller was taken away from Party Poker, it was like, hmm, that's that's strange. Because like I remember having like the Net, NetTeller debit card in my wallet, where it was like I could just go buy stuff with this debit card that I load directly from Party Poker. You know, that's two thousand five, right? Like yeah. that. If we talk about that today, being able to do that in like the online poker space, it almost feels like we're talking like a hundred years in the future such a thing is uh, possible. But back yeah. then, that that was just the way it was. Were you ever like chasing bonus? Did you ever do like the ton of bonus whoring thing?
2: Like I did that for a while and I would, I would have like 25 poker sites I would play on at the beginning of the month. And I would play off like $3,000 worth of bonuses in like the first four or five days or a week. Cause I would just take the bonus code from this site, go put deposit 500 bucks into whatever. Bob's random (laughs) poker room.com play the, play the X number of hands get the $200 bonus, pull off the 700 bucks and go on to the next room. So the beginning of every month for me for a couple of years there at the, like in the early days, the beginning of every month for me, I would just be in and out of net teller 30 or 40 times, you know, doing all those bonuses. Net teller yeah. felt completely safe. I mean, we just had no idea it, it ever wouldn't be, I guess some people did and I just it never occurred to me. I mean, and I think party poker leaving actually made it, harder to see it coming because when party poker left, they just, they just gave everybody their money back and left. And so I thought like the worst thing that could happen is if full tilt does what party poker does. That would be like a disaster. I thought that was the floor. And, and if that happened, that would be bad, but I'll have a hundred grand that I can do whatever I want with. And I can go back to school or whatever. If that happens, it, it never occurred to me that they would both be shut down and then not, and then the money would be gone.
1: Yeah. I mean, that basically we got fired. Overnight, and that for an online poker player who like prides, you know, i I prided myself on I can do what I want wherever I want, anytime I want. Like I am in charge of my own destiny. And then I woke up one day and was fired, and was like, I I was in shock. You know, really just pure shock. I didn't know what to do. Didn't know what the next step was. Didn't know what the landscape would look like. Didn't know if this was temporary. Or forever, or like what the next move was, you know, uh, there's a lot of a lot of questions, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain that went down in those days. And you know, you and I are two people that made it through, right? Like we punched through the other side, but I, I you have you have to believe that there are a lot of people that did not, that did not, did not recover, yes. that left the, the game forever, um, and are probably still bitter about it to this day um for sure my greatest accomplishment
2: in poker is surviving black friday the rebuilding my bankroll after black friday is is definitely the the biggest accomplishment i've had in poker it dwarfs everything else i've done in terms of how much work it was and how proud of it I am.
1: yeah i mean it, because like that was a that 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 was a true test of resiliency right there yeah.
2: like, my expenses were six grand a month and i had 10 grand in my pocket whew. like recovering from that was not easy but Making it happen uh, made me a much better poker player.
1: How'd you make it happen?
2: I drove to Chicago a lot uh, from Minnesota. It was about a seven-hour drive to to uh, Hammond, Indiana, which is uh, where the horseshoe is there outside of Chicago. And played a lot of 2-5 there. I hit the road. I was on the road chasing, like, I would go to where there were little tournament series because back then in a little tournament series, you could go play the like the one two or two five no limit games and just crush the tournament guys and that was where the most money was and i stayed in really cheap hotels and i kept my expenses super low and my ex-wife wife at the time would just pack my stuff when it was time to go and keep me appraised of whatever was going on at the house and hold and things down while i was on the road for a month at a time i was on the road for eight months of that next 12 months Going to wherever the games are the best because it was it was gonna be really tough for me to to do that in Minnesota at the time, um, to make a living. And then when I was home, I did play in Minnesota. But uh it was it was a lot of cheap hotel rooms and and one, two, and two five games and eight sixteen limit games if there was nothing else running in three hundred dollar tournaments and those kinds of things, hunting the best value. I wouldn't go to a tournament if the hotel rooms are gonna be too expensive. I couldn't justify you know, if my ROI in this tournament is this, I can't make enough money to justify this hotel room and still pay my bills at home and you know, that kind of stuff. So it was a lot of planning and thinking and then a lot of hard work and being away from home. Yeah. So once I recovered from it, um, you know, within a year I-, I was making reasonable money, uh, had enough bankroll that if I, you know, I could take a little time off if I wanted to. And then I got a um I got a couple of gigs and got little training stuff going and other other things going on where I didn't have to directly make my living at the at the tables 100% and I could like back off from that a little bit and so it made my life a lot easier within like a year to 18 months.
1: So after this year to 18 months of recovery which I have to imagine uh hardened you up a little bit. You I I think that like you you, you were probably more confident in your game than you had been just like, man, if I could make my way through this, like I could go through anything. Right. Like that's a, that's quite the trial. When you have to win every week,
2: you get a lot better. I mean, when it, when you just have to, um, that changes how you look at the game and it gives you a real thick skin. You just can't allow your, it's a mental toughness thing where you just, if you just can't allow yourself to, uh, you get a lot better at not doing it. You're yeah, still I mean, going to be bothered by tilt things, but it's going to happen a lot less often because you just can't afford it. And so you get better at, at handling it and you get a really thick skin.
1: Yeah, I made some really uh, questionable decisions when I was younger. I got married way too young. And also around that same time in Black Friday, my monthly expenses were around 6K, 7K as well. and And I was the sole breadwinner. And just having the pressure of like, you don't get to feel like you can't play like you don't get to feel like yeah, yeah you, you just need to take 3 or 4 days to figure it out or to get back to get rejuvenated like you've got to fucking get in there and you've yeah. got to perform because if you don't then people don't get to eat and that's a problem and so like nothing makes you harder than forced performance under those conditions right with all of that pressure when people come to me now and they're like single by themselves and like crying about breaking even over two or three weeks i'm just like yo calm down like (laughs) you you don't understand what pressure really is right Right. like let's put this into perspective right um so yeah like that and it's the bankroll stress is a totally different i don't even know how to describe
2: it but it's the thing i like the least about poker these days is that Um, it's not just that if you don't make money this week that people don't get to eat this week, but it's like, if you don't make money this week, you might never make money again. Yeah. Where's it going to come from? The the printer who sells this printing press to pay rent never pays the rent again. And, and, and so, you know, it's, I have to win and it has to be enough to pay all those bills because if I, even if I only win enough to pay part of the bills for a few weeks, it's going to knock my bankroll down to the point where, you know, risk of ruin is a real problem. And, you know that if you're already struggling and you have to borrow money and pay interest on it you're going to, it's going to be even harder and there's you know there's all this stress that piles up because you have to maintain this chunk of money in order to keep it growing while you're slicing chunks off of it and this managing the bankroll thing when you're in
1: the situation
2: it sounds like you and I are in very similar situations after black friday that managing that chunk of money is such a big mental burden
1: yeah i mean it it really is. It's like just a running total in your head at all times of like what your bankroll is, what it started, what it's going to be, the monthly expenses, what that's gonna look like. I mean, it's almost like an obsession that is just always at the forefront of your mind. You always know. I mean, I know that lots of people say that they're happier after Black Friday. I don't know whether in a lot of cases Uh, Black Friday was a good thing for them specifically but for me it it turned out good (laughs) and the reason was I made lifestyle changes that Black Friday was a catalyst for right like I got divorced which was a great lifestyle change for me specifically. It's amazing isn't it? I recommend it to everyone. Divorce is fantastic. Yeah like that's the old you know the old joke right like why is divorce so expensive? Because it's worth it. And it is certainly, certainly the best thing I've ever paid for. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, changed my life drastically. And it wasn't even that my
2: ex-wife was just a terribly evil person, but it was just a bad, really bad relationship. And I, I just, but, you know, the last six years since I got divorced have been some of the happiest time of my life.
1: We change, right? Like human beings just change over time. And one, you, you make decisions, especially when you're young that are like, you look back and you're like, ugh. What yeah. on earth was I doing? And that's just the nature of becoming wiser, maturing, learning, growing, and having life experience. But let's go back to your to your story because you're about to hit some pretty good times, right? Around the, the year 2014, you got things back online in 2012, and then you're cruising along. Tell me about the year 2014 and what happened then.
2: I was playing more tournaments around that time, more live tournaments, and uh, I had a friend who's reasonably well off and 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 gambles quite a bit and buys action from players quite a bit. And he said, "Why don't you put together a big package for the World Series this year, and I'll buy a, a big chunk of it?" So, uh, you know, in uh, in the past year, he uh, was the first time I'd ever like really sold action in tournaments, and he had invested and made, I don't know, thirteen thousand or something from his investment as a as a portion of the past years um tournaments for the summer where I was mostly playing smaller you know 300 to a thousand dollars stuff. and uh he said why don't you just do that so I put together a package that was like around 50,000 and he bought a big chunk of it and and uh I had played the 10k horse a couple times before and was very comfortable in my horse game there was a, a while on full tilt where I felt like I was the best horse player on the site and people wouldn't play with me um so I was very comfortable in playing that game. And uh, so I added the 10K horse to the schedule. I played a couple 10Ks and then a bunch of smaller stuff, 50,000, around 50,000 in, in was the total package. And then I bought about half of it of my own action. And I don't know if I even had a cash yet when that happened. It was fairly early in the series. Bagged less than a starting stack the first day, just more than half a starting stack after the first day. and. Uh, another guy that played the tournament that uh, another guy from Minnesota had bagged about that amount and was considering not even going back for day two. It was just, it was just not
1: a lot of chips and <laughs> uh, come on, you got to go back.
2: Yeah. He was thinking, he he legitimately was thinking about not going back. Um, and, uh, went back and at the end of day two, I bagged up a lot of chips, survived and bagged up a lot of chips and things looked pretty good. And, um, uh, that guy had busted fairly early in the day. And actually, on, the, on early on day three, he texted me, when are you going to be free today? Because he didn't know I was still in the tournament. And I said, yeah. when I bust the last donkey. And he's saved that text in his phone all these years. And every time I see him in Vegas, he shows me that text on his phone again. So I started day three with a reasonable stack of chips and then just kept chipping up all day. Just it, things went well. I was playing well you also have to run good to win that tournament I mean, you have to run good to win any tournament. And I did run good on day three. Um, players were overly scared in a lot of the uh, in limit Hold'em in particular. Um, a lot of the players, it's still somewhat true in mixed game tournaments, but, but five and 10 years ago, it was more true. Um, a lot of the good players are good players that are old school are overly scared. They're not playing enough hands and they're easily too easily bluffed sometimes. So uh, I was running over a lot of people, especially in the limit hold'em hands. I was a pretty good limit hold'em player, and I was used to being aggressive. I played a lot of limit hold'em in Minnesota, and a lot of mixed-game players just hate the limit hold'em rounds. So they almost sit them out. They just don't play very many hands unless they really have something. So I I stole a lot of pots during the limit hold'em rounds. At one point at the final table, I raised six limit hold'em hands in a row, and Randy Oll was on my left, and he said, are you going to raise every hand? And I looked down at my cards and said yes. And I raised again, and everyone folded again. And I and I and I added something like two percent of all the chips or three percent of all the chips in play, just from stealing that round of limit hold'em. You know, uh, of all the chips in play in a 10k, wow. just from stealing that round of limit hold'em without ever seeing the flop. That's so that, pretty that nice. A lot.
1: Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty nice. Um, just getting that over folded, no risk limit hold'em money and chipping up. Yeah.
2: And, then, and, and I was I was the least famous player who probably who made the money and certainly who made the final table I mean if you looked if you looked at like all the people who played that tournament like I was the only name that, that you wouldn't recognize in the money really like there were very few people who made the money who were not or not people that you recognized um playing on full tilt with so many of the red pros and having a lot of the red pros be my favorite prey I wasn't scared of people because they were famous in fact I liked that 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 made me almost more comfortable playing against people who were well-known players. But the final table was was a lot of very well-known players. So it was it was um looked pretty tough, but it didn't feel I wouldn't I didn't feel that much pressure at the time. I would only start to feel pressure when I went on break. While you're playing, it's just kind of a, the pressure slowly builds and you don't notice it. But then when you take a break, then oh wow. And you know, my best previous finish in World Series of poker tournament had been 17th. I think I'd finished 17th a couple times. I think i finished 17 three times now and um suddenly i'm at the final table of a thing that pays half a million for first this was like this was a big a big thing and more importantly the bracelet because when adam and i were first talking poker 2001 or 2000 we talked like the the best player in the world was whoever won the 10k horse and we we really talked about how that was like a, a real crown tournament to win if i could have picked one in terms of how much happiness would just bring me to have that bracelet in particular. That's the one I would have picked, and suddenly I'm at the final table of that one with a bunch of chips.
1: Yeah, and we'll just... I have it pulled up here on Hinden Mob just to kind of see like the people who are still left at like 20 folks. or So, you know, there's Negranu, Elke, Bonimo, Nick Schulman, David Benjamin, Bruno Fatusi, Bill Chin, Max Pescatori, a lot of well-known famous yeah. poker players you find yourself at the final table now did you feel the pressure of that final table only on breaks just on breaks so when you're playing really, you're just at the
2: table it was just like just like any other day of poker just i mean it, it it's always intense at the end of a tournament and that's when it's the most fun i mean the most fun poker you can have the most fun poker you can play in my opinion is at the end of a big tournament like that's when things are really interesting and intense but it didn't feel like like I was nervous, except for when I went on breaks. And then I would just go off by myself somewhere, <laughs> stand in a corner and think about what was happening. Yeah. And I had people in the stands, and I would like go say hi to people and get a few hugs, and then I would go off by myself and not talk to anybody during the breaks. But while I was sitting at the table, it didn't feel like a lot of pressure.
1: I think that's just, you know, that's that's the pro in you, right? Like, that's the pro. With, like, when you can think about it, it feels, you feel it, but like when you're in it, you're just in it. Like you're just, you're playing cards and you're looking at the data points. You're trying to make good decisions and everything else is just kind of like on the periphery of like what, what, what is happening? Like you're just not really paying attention to all of those things. Um, I've always found it kind of curious that I don't, I mean, obviously I've been nervous in playing big pots, I guess, over my career, but never like, overwhelming or intangible or something that like I, I feel really, really is affecting me. But when a good friend of mine gets in a pot, like a 20 or 30 or 40 K pot or whatever, I'm much more scared. I'm much more nervous for them mm-hmm. than I would be if, if I were in it myself, right? It's just this weird, like sense of
2: the same way. You can be more embarrassed for someone else than yourself when you just, you just almost hate to see somebody else sad. Then, because you know you can handle it, and you and you like hate to be dealing with their unhappiness instead.
1: Yeah, it's weird. Sometimes I know that that even they can handle it. It's just like I, I don't even know psychologically like exactly what's going. I just know that like I'm, I, I'm the person that like I want the ball. I want to be in there, and I'm much Absolutely. better when I've got the ball than when I'm like on the sideline uh, spectating.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that is the real pro mindset: is I want the
1: ball. Yeah, like, I, I want to be in there. Put me in. Uh, that's always, like, my the saddest moment of a poker tournament, besides entering the poker tournament itself, um, <laughs> is, like, if things are going well, and then all of a sudden, like, you just lose a big one, and, and you're broke. And, and, like, it's always so sad for me, like, you know, standing up, leaning my chair back, and just like looking at everybody that gets to continue playing and I don't get to continue playing anymore because I don't have any chips. Um, It's like, Oh God, I was just there. I was just playing. What happened? Um, That's always the saddest moment for me in the tournament.
2: Busting the main event is just the worst thing ever. Just so miserable, whether you bust the first day or whenever.
1: I can't speak to it. I've never played the main event, which is like kind of, kind of funny for me as a professional poker player to say, but I, honestly, over all of my years of playing poker, I've never played a single day of MTTs. Like I've never played a single MTT slate in one day, which is also, I thought about that like quite recently and I was like, that's kind of weird. Like I've never just had like a day where it's like, yeah, let's just fire up all the MTTs and go. Um, It's always oh. been, maybe I'll play a bigger MTT and for the most part, just play play the cash. But never just like fired up a, a day of online tournaments. Correct. I can. I cannot so play some
2: live tournaments.
1: Yeah, I've played live tournaments. I have played online tournaments. I just can't bring myself to like fire up the thirty dollar daily thing where first is like twelve hundred. I just can't. I just can't do it. I, I can't. I, I can't make myself do it. I feel like I learned a lot
2: in in the short amount of time that I did spend doing that. There was a there was a while where I just felt like tournaments would be fun, and I was tired of playing whatever I was playing, and so I started firing up like this. You know, I would just play all day Sunday and Saturday on full tilt, play all the tournaments on tilt and stars. And the thing that you learn is that you cannot let your first five bust outs bother you because the first five results you're going to have when you fire up eight tables are going to be bust outs, right? That's just mathematically, that's always going to happen. And if you let that screw your whole day, then you're going to have 25 more bust outs and you're going to be down a bunch of money at the end of the day. You have to be approaching these tournaments. Every one fresh and be playing well because when it really matters is going to be at the end of the day after you've busted out of a, almost everything you've played, and now you've got chips in a few tournaments where there's a potential real money involved. And if you if you're tilted because of all those previous bustouts, if you're the kind of player who is that way, you have no chance of being a long-term successful tournament player because you're always going to be playing badly when there's big money involved. That that playing days of of MTTs definitely helped me with that. It was a skill that I wouldn't have developed probably any other way.
1: Yeah, I, I think I had that like built in to me, just because like like I told you before about the life situation of like, you know, you you gotta perform at a high level, and, and also too like, when you're in that sort of life situation where it's like survival mode, and I've just I have to provide you take less risks, right? Like you don't, you're like, well, this is the thing that I'm good at. This is where I'm making my money. So I'm not really just going to take a day off to go play MTTs because then I don't get to play cash and then I don't get to make my hourly rate. Uh, I don't know what to expect from that. So like you just kind of stay in your lane. Um, If
2: you're a a cash crusher, you're definitely just lighting money on fire to go play MTTs.
1: Yeah, I think so too. That's how how I've always viewed it. There's no way you could
2: make as much money as an hourly rate is what you make playing cash with the same bankroll risk. There's just no way.
1: Yeah. And that's sort of like how I've always viewed it. And so I've just always kind of, and plus I think like early on in my career too, there was a lot of like, uh, like you said, you go to play the cash games to play against the MTT pros, right? Like there was that a lot of that, like the cash game players are superior to the MTT players and you know, the, the thing that the cash game players want more than anything is for somebody to bink an MTT for a lot of money. And like, let's come on over here, buddy. Like, we got a fresh seat for you in this cash game. Um, There I, I used think- to be a horse tournament
2: on Sundays on full tilt. It was like 200 bucks. And like, often, like the winner, second place, third place people would have enough money to come play like 50, horse and would think suddenly think they're good enough to play it. So there would always be like 30, 60, up to 100, 200 horse Tables running that night, waiting for those people to show up, and they would show up and just get slaughtered, and you know, dust off most of their winnings. They'd win twenty grand and then just dust it at the cash games where they clearly weren't good enough to compete.
1: Yeah, nowadays, nowadays, MTT players, I think they can they can transfer their skill set. They're much more skillful now than they were fifteen years ago but the I would say at the
2: top and like the bigger MTTs yeah, for sure.
1: The guys at the top, I, I would say still a lot of MTT players are probably going to struggle transitioning to cash, dealing with the depth and the, just, you know, the added complexity in every single hand and the decision tree is just massive. And like, you know, it, it's not so much a pre-flop game anymore when you're playing cash, you're seeing lots of flops, you're seeing lots of turns, equities are shifting and it, it's just a different animal that like you try to start pushing small pre-flop edges. You're, cash game players are going to eat you alive. Yeah.
2: And I think that uh, a lot of tournament players are losing players, but they don't care. It's a form of entertainment. They don't lose that much money. Almost everybody who enters the tournament with you also busted out. Like it's just kind of, you you know, there, there are people who can recreationally play tournaments for years and years and have fun doing it. And that's not always true in cash games. Like if somebody's really bad at cash games, they just get crushed so fast that you don't, You don't get to play anymore because you've lost all your money too fast, and so those those bad players like they wouldn't transition transition to cash because when they do play cash, they lose their money so fast that they can't going back to tournaments (laughs) is standard for them. And so the tournament fields like in the like a three hundred dollar tournament is a much softer field than than a a one three cash like that's just for sure true. Like these players are not as good as these players. If we took if we swapped them. You'd have a much softer cash game than you would tournament, for sure. At the higher limits, you know, in a twenty-five k high roller, like those guys, those guys can play, and they're going to be able to play any game like pretty well. But at the lower limits, the the tournaments are really much softer.
1: Yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, uh,
2: it doesn't mean that you make more money because of the way they're set
1: up. (laughs) Right. So you're at the final table, the ten k horse. You're playing down, you know, it's getting close. You can see and smell the finish line. Like, was there ever a moment of anxiety that like, holy shit, like I'm, you know, we're forehanded for this bracelet that is like, if I could choose a bracelet, this would be the bracelet that I would want. Well, besides, I guess, the main for obvious financial reasons. But right, uh, just for like the trophy case, this is the one. I think the
2: pressure built... But it was, it was relieved by the fact that by the time we got to five handed, we were guaranteed like over a hundred thousand. And at that point I've kind of already achieved more than I had achieved before. So like, I'm already going to have doubled the, the value of the package of, of entries that I sold, which includes 25K of in my own It's going to turn into 50 and I have other money in, in the bank because I didn't I certainly would invest my whole, wouldn't invest my whole bankroll into this. And and I've got this whole rest of, this, rest of the series to play. And like, I'm already just, this is already a great summer. So the pressure isn't as high when, you, when you've when you kind of already, like I've already really, I'm super happy, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you're just trying to just play your best to make sure you have the best shot at winning. When I noticed that there was some real pressure was when they brought out the bracelet and set it between us. Randy was on my left. And so they set the bracelet right between us. And I wouldn't look at it. I'm not looking at that. I'm not touching it. I'm not thinking about it unless it's mine. So I never looked at it until I had won it. And that was and when I realized I'm not looking at that. And then I thought, well, that's not a way I would usually behave. <laughs> and I knew that there was some pressure on then. And then on the last hand, it was really like, once we got the heads up, then it felt like some pressure. And then on the last hand, it was really like, that was a when when people talk about sweating something, I don't care about a, a gamble. I'm not, I'm not interested in gambling, and so I'm not sweating cards and looking at pips and all that stuff that so many mixed game players love to do. I don't care about that. Let's play poker. But but then when when Randy was looking at his last card, it, the I was I was actually sweating.
1: I believe it. There's a long line, like, and, it,
2: and it was a crazy hand because I I started off with deuce three five. Is that right? Yeah, two, three, five, deuce, deuce. I think something like that. But I started off with like a reasonable hand. But he started off with with a pair of aces that I couldn't see. And when we got to fifth street, I had trips and he still had a pair of aces. So we get, and we got it all in. There was no way either of us could have played any different in the hand. It was really predetermined. Um, and then on sixth street, he caught his third ace. And I just felt like I watched a bracelet go down the toilet. Like I was still going to have a bunch of chips, but I had him. I had, it was there, you know, I was, and, and so when I looked and saw that I filled up and rolled over my hand, rolled over my card and said, I filled up, then I'm watching him sweat because I'm really like, there's a real good chance he's going to win this pot for me, even though I filled up, right? He's got a lot of outs to his full house and he's sweating. And then he says, you're good. Just calmly, you're good. And then, and then it was, it was there, but like that, I don't know, maybe it was five seconds of sweat. It was like real sweat. That was the first time I've really
1: been stressed about a gamble. And then what happens next? What's the feeling? You take it down. It's yours.
2: I shook his hand and told him that he played great. Cause he did. And, and I was kind of thinking about those things ahead of time. Like, what am I going to do if I win this? I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to behave with class to my opponent. Then I'm going to thank the dealer. You know all these things, and so I like got those things out of the way before I let myself celebrate. And then, as soon as I got those things out of the way, and like turned, and the like the crew, the people from Minnesota were all in this in the stands, and they were like coming out of the stands toward me. And as soon as I turned, my friend Ku, Ku Vang is a great player, like almost tackled me, almost knocked me down with a big hug, and and um, then kind of everybody was around, and then I couldn't stop smiling for like forty five minutes like just smile pasted to my face. (laughs) And that 45 minutes was life changing for me. Um, You know, we did the, we did the interview, uh, Remco Rinkoma from, from the WSOP did my interview. It was like three in the morning or two in the morning. So we do a little video interview and then we're done. And I'm annoyed that I don't get to take the bracelet with me, but you don't get it until you get to to the ceremony. It's Mm -hmm. a couple of days later. And then I get my payout card and and it's three in the morning. So I can go right away. So I, Taking this payout card and I get a check for, I don't know. I think I took a check for like four hundred or three hundred of it or something. I took a check for almost for a big chunk of it, and then and then took some cash because I knew investors that were there were going to want a bunch of cash.
1: Talk um, about first world poker problems. You got to wait two <laughs> days to get your bracelet. Seriously,
2: <laughs> but that as I was walking off stage, um, I saw Chad. uh, I can't believe I can't remember his last name. I feel like I'm getting super old. I know him really well. He's he's like the senior editor for uh, Poker News. Holloway? Yes. Sorry, Chad. Um, That was just my brain doesn't work. Um, I saw Chad Holloway and he had won the employee event like a year or two before. And he knew a lot of people who'd won bracelets. And um, he said, it's going to change your life. And I said, Nah. Okay. And I and I really didn't believe that I'd been talking for years about how a bracelet was was. Not what people thought it was that, you know, they've given away a thousand of these things. It doesn't mean you're going to be flying in private jets everywhere and like your whole life is, you know, it's not going to be that big a deal. And that part of it was true, but he was right. It did change my life because being that happy for 45 minutes or however long it was, not being able to stop smiling, pointed out to me how unhappy I was in the rest of my life. That, you know, I told someone I laughed by myself. Like, I was alone in an elevator, and I laughed at something I thought of. And, and they said, oh, yeah, I bet you're pretty happy. And I was like, oh, other people do that normally. Like, people do sometimes laugh by themselves. And I hadn't in years, and I had forgotten that that was, like, kind of a normal thing. And it, it pointed out to me how unhappy I was in my whole life, that I really need to change a bunch of things. One of those was getting a divorce, but like there were all kinds of other changes I needed to make in my life just to figure out how to be happier. And that, so the bracelet really did do that. And it knocked the chip off my shoulder. I I didn't need to prove to anybody else that I was good at poker anymore. If winning the 10K horse and making a living for 20 years playing poker doesn't do it, nothing's gonna, and I'm not going to convince them. So I don't care what anybody thinks about my game now. I just, I just play for money.
1: You know, Chris, I thought about that before, right? Like the validation side of it. Um, And you know what I think the reality is? I think you proved to yourself. And I think like most of the people that knew you already knew. And you just had to prove that to yourself. Like when we say like, I want to prove everybody wrong. Oftentimes there's nobody actively rooting against us. And there's nobody that really thinks that we're not able to do it. It's just ourselves. Like, like, you know, Tom Brady takes all these like, remarks like uh, as a chip on his shoulder and uses them as fuel and like they passed me up i'm gonna make them pay forever right like they fucking know they messed up right this is like 20 <laughs> years down the line they know they messed up by not draft like everybody knows you're the best at this point right like you yeah. don't have to the only person that doesn't know you're the best is tom brady and that's because you need that to motivate you to move forward yeah. um but anyway that's just a funny thing that i've been thinking a lot about lately that's
2: absolutely true in my case uh, you know they're It wasn't like there were a bunch of people telling me I was terrible at poker, but I really, once I had that, I didn't feel like I needed to prove to anybody that I was any good. And I've I've always been reasonably good at that, but now, I was playing a 2-5 game in Iowa a few years ago. I made this play that this old nitty old guy didn't like, uh, and... It was annual there. It, went, <laughs> it was a play that went way over his head. Yeah. Like I, I, I knew that he had queens and bluffed him off a nine high flop because I knew that I could do it in this way. And I ended up having to show and then I knew I was gonna get the drunk short that guy in the pot, and I set it up that way. And so then I end up showing down my second pair with eight, nine, and like the guy with queens loses his mind, and he gives me this whole lecture about it. like keep playing. I get this, like I get the keep keep it up buddy speech. And I hadn't had that speech in like a couple of years. I kind of enjoyed it. And I just said, oh, yeah, I just didn't think you had it. I just, uh, I don't know. And then I just played it off. And one of my students was at the table with me and was like, that was amazing. You not only outplay the shit out of that guy, but then you let him berate you and you let him convince the whole rest of the table that you're terrible. And I was like, yeah, why wouldn't I do that? That's the most profitable thing. And he's like, you don't care if anybody thinks you're any good. And I was like, no, I care if they give me money, I have bills to pay. I'm happy outside of poker. I don't need to prove things in poker. I don't need to like convince these people that I'm great at poker. I don't care what they think. They're just people I work against. And I like, if
1: I make money, I can go do things that actually make me happy. You certainly don't need to validate yourself to someone who has no earthly idea what just happened to them. It's like, yeah. you know, it's almost uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm the worst. Nice hand. Um, I got yeah. lucky. Sorry. I just
2: don't play very much. I'm just not very good.
1: Yeah, like whatever. Um, I used
2: that one at two five games at the win, like, you know, a couple of years ago when I was playing that game a lot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I, I bought like some button down shirts and stuff so I could not look like a, a poker pro and and it would go play and put a beat on somebody and they would, you know, tell me something. I would say, Sorry, I just don't play that much and I'm just I just not that good. And like the you know, the two kids in headphones at the table would look at me like, Yeah, right. But everybody
1: else would just think it was true and that's fine with me. Yeah, they just They Stereotype, I mean, for like a a two years, I wore a suit to play poker, and like I I think that like people caught on, but still, like, you somebody shows up like in a suit and tie to play poker that's like obviously been through dry cleaning, they're they're you're not (laughs) terrible, yeah, you're, you're gonna look at them a little differently than you look at like the young kid that shows up in sweatpants in a backpack like you yeah. know that kid like you 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 know what you're facing when that kid shows up to do Absolutely. to do business but like the the person in a suit you, you don't really know like you, you you basically have to assume they don't know what they're doing until they prove otherwise but in the time that they're proving otherwise you know there's edges to be had and just extra money to be won
2: The best camouflage ever for me in live games was my Vikings jersey. My fiance's parents bought me a jersey and during football season I'll wear it every time I go to play poker as much as I can because nobody wants to ask me what I do for a living. Nobody wants to talk about poker. Nobody wants to think about whether I'm good at poker or not. They just want to talk about football. It's amazing. They they assume that I'm just another sports better in town from and I'm from Minnesota and they want to talk about Minnesota. not even have to, I don't have to lie to them about what I do for a living. Because they never ask. They just
1: ask about football. It's it's fantastic. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever lied to anybody playing live poker about what I do.
2: I, I don't and, think I have either, but I've avoided talking about it quite a lot.
1: I don't think I've avoided. Talk- I don't go out of my way to talk about it, I guess, like at the table. But I've also been like, because I think for me, like it's always been so obvious. Like I'm 22 years old, just like. <laughs> showing up at a casino and playing <laughs> higher stakes. Like, it, like, what am I going to do? Like, no, I'm, you know, I'm a, you know, like, uh, just inherited a bunch of money. Like I have this, the silver spoon and I'm just playing really big. And like the way that I handle my, it, it's just like, I have no chance of anybody thinking that I'm anything other than what I am, which I, I, to me actually resonates very well because I don't like being deceptive. I don't like actually lying to people, uh, in that way. It just, for some reason, for some reason, I, I guess I'm very proud of what I do for a living. And so I'm fine with like, yeah, I do this for a living. I play poker professionally and, you know, take that for what it is. And we're still going to play. It's not like that makes it them magically better at poker or magically better playing against me. It's not, yeah, yeah. not like an edge one way or the other, in, in my opinion. But um, anyway, so going back, you know, you win your bracelet. Everything's validated, you know here we are seven years later. Can you believe that it's been seven years since that moment and yeah
2: it's uh it feels like man, it's been a long time since I won a bracelet. <laughs> like winning a bracelet is like sex. you think that you want it until you do it, and then you realize you want it all the time,
1: yeah, you want
2: like, more like like yeah i i I wanted a a second bracelet a lot more than I wanted the first one, yeah
1: and um so. I guess we'll close there, right? Like we, we've made it to the end of your your rise, and then Black Friday, and then the second, and we've skipped out on you know probably ten thousand questions that I had prepared here, but that's okay. That's that's a thing that happens in the best of conversations. Oh man, I shouldn't say that. Let me go back, uh, <laughs> Chris. Edit that out so that we don't offend past guests, but. That's the thing that happens sometimes on this show where we just kind of go down avenues and tangents that are interesting and unexpected. And I think that's what makes doing the podcast fun for me. And um, so I'll just ask you a couple more questions and we'll wrap up. Are you working on any projects right now that are near and dear to your heart?
2: I always have a million projects. During COVID, I started a bunch of side hustles while the poker rooms were closed down here. So I've got all these different things going on. Um, I play a lot of music. I take a lot of pictures, um, and I'm writing a book, which is the biggest one. Uh, I've been writing for years and years. The two poker books out now, and um, I've finally decided this this novel that I drafted, uh, finished the draft of like two years ago, uh, needs to be rewritten, polished, and done. It just needs to. This thing needs to happen. I really I have believed in it for six or seven years while I've been working on on it on and off. And I've decided that this this next two months, like this is one of the few things I'm doing um, during May or June is this podcast because otherwise I'm writing all day. I'm just working on writing all the time. So that's a big part of it is the novel that I'm working on is the, the current love project that I love.
1: And does it have anything to do with poker, this novel? No. No. So we're um, it's a, moving it's, away.
2: Yeah. It's just a, um, it's like a book club fiction uh, kind of thing. It's a, uh, it's a literary, it's a literary novel and not related to poker. Well, I also have a, another poker book that I was kind of, was kind of in the middle of doing when I decided forget that I'm doing the novel. I'm going to finish it. So, but I do have uh kind of a, a second like the short stack ninja was was a really easy book for me to write and it was fairly short this is a much more involved thing about hand reading and ranges and opponent profiling and that kind of stuff in cash games
1: yeah it's uh i would explore the novel before the the next poker book i think that's oh, just a, sure. a better way to flex your creative muscles like I, I love just i mean this podcast is a thing that gives me an opportunity to be creative and create things and put content out in the world and have great conversations and that to me is, uh, well, there's a reason why I'm doing the podcast right now and not just grinding. Because like, I, I think that as poker players, we need to have multiple pursuits and multiple things that give us joy, happiness, fulfillment. And, um, you know, because you want to love poker when you're playing it and when you have the opportunity to play. And if you do it all day long and it's the only thing you do, you tend to burn out. You tend to resent it in a lot of ways. But um, I've really realized over the years how important that stuff is. It took me a while,
2: but maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, I bought an old muscle car, a '67, 1967 Galaxy 500 XL. I just, I just love them. I love old cars, especially from like the muscle era. And I wanted to just buy one and fix it up and have a thing to do. So I bought one, and and you know it ran, but it needed it needed a lot of love. And I started working on it. I didn't know anything about cars. I'd never changed my own oil before. Started learning about it, taking pictures of things as I took them apart, playing around with it. I had a couple neighbors that knew knew about cars that were helpful. Um, and I went inside and I told my ex wife, uh, I really like this. I didn't expect to like working on cars. That that wasn't that wasn't why I bought this thing. I want to drive it. And she said, well, you just click buttons for money all day. You're actually seeing something accomplished when you work on the car. Now the carburetor's working. You see that you've done a thing, and you don't get that reward ever in your job. I don't know how many years I would have gone without, without her telling me that before I realized that was the problem. She's right. And, and now I'm, I'm cognizant of that. Now, even you know, a year and a half ago when I was just going to the various poker rooms to play two five all the time, I was just, I would go do that. And then multiple times a week, we would go hiking somewhere and I would take pictures and put pictures up on Facebook. And, you know, I would write things, create things just so that I could see something that I had achieved. Because if you just click buttons for money, I mean, that's, you're just turning a crank and making dollars come out. You don't feel like you've achieved anything. And, and if you don't have any sort of other outlet that'll eventually make you crazy, I think. And it'll make you hate poker. You have to have those other things.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And this is coming from two people whose career has been poker for decades and decades. So like, again, give yourself the space to pursue other things that you love. Because I mean, ultimately, I think that I can only speak for myself, but I chose poker because it was interesting and I love the game and I love cards and I love being curious and I love pursuing it and you know you just need other activities to pursue like there are, you, we play poker to make money but what are we playing poker to make money to do like wh- what are we progressing towards is it just like be like smaug in the hobbit and just hoard all the money that we have like we're we need to use that to live better lives more fulfilling go on vacation have adventures pick up hobbies Find out figure out shit that's fun to you, right like that's those are the ingredients to a a fulfilled life, and sometimes I think as poker players, we can kind of lose sight of, of all of that, just in like you know bankroll protection mode and like I don't want to spend that money because I don't want to take a day off because then I'm losing money um, they're just easy traps to fall into, and while you're living the poker life, you just need to remember to give yourself space to pursue other stuff. And then poker is even more sweeter when you come back to it. I agree. Absolutely. And uh final question for you, Chris, where can the chasing poker greatness listener learn more about you on the worldwide web?
2: Twitter and Facebook are probably good. My Twitter is at Fox poker, Fox. I am occasionally um, confused with the Chris Wallace who works for Fox news, the news reporter, <laughs> So, you will see me um, in fairly harmless ways, kind of trolling the people that think that that's me on occasion. Other times it'll be poker content. But uh, you know, I, during the, the 2020 or 2016 debates, uh, he moderated one of the debates. And so I live tweeted as if I was his assistant, Kevin, the whole time. And I just messed with people who thought that I was really that person. It's very clear that I'm not that person. There's nothing that indicates that I'm him. So people who find me and think that I'm him and tag me in posts are generally technologically illiterate. And so they fall for simpler gags than most.
1: Yeah. And uh, that, that makes the payoff even more worth it. <laughs> it is.
2: Yeah, it's super fun. And then you can find my book, Short Stack Ninja, on Amazon. My Amazon author page has both my books listed.
1: Awesome, man. And, and That's all of really that. it. I
2: don't have a website or a blog anymore. I used to, but it just kind of wasn't worth the time. And wasn't maintaining it. So.
1: so get rid of it. Um, yeah. For the listener, you can also click through the show page. We'll be sure to put all those links in there so that you can just click through, find Chris's book, find him on social media. Thank you very much for your time and your energy, sir. Have a great rest of your day and looking forward to having you back sometime in the near future. Thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. Look me up when you come to Vegas. Yes, sir.
0: Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community. Book a coaching session or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.